I'm part of the fellowship. The fellowship. The fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, or popularity. I don't have to be right, recognized, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, am uplifted by prayer, and labor with power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, but my guide is reliable, my mission is clear, I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must keep going until he comes. Give until I drop. Preach until all know. And work until he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. All right. Good morning, Trinity Church. It's great to see you today. Happy Sunday. I want to especially thank, I've met a couple of you on the way in today who have kind of, uh, we kind of made a, a, a gentle or a, a soft request last week at the 930 service for some people to maybe move towards 8 o'clock or 1115. So I met a couple of you today. So thank you for showing up. This is what this is like. So now you know, okay? This is what the 8 o'clock is like. But we're really glad you're all here today, especially those of you that are visiting with us. Uh, a hearty welcome to you. Well, we're going to kick in today. I just want to know by show of hands, how many of you started watching the Olympics yet? Did you see any of that? Awesome. We were all excited to watch it yesterday a little bit together as a family. had been on a road trip with my daughter, Aaliyah. We got back and late Friday night started to watch it. All excited about the, the, the zeal of competition. And then we turned on curling. <laughs> I just thought... Dear God, why do certain things become Olympic sports? I have no idea. Now, to those of you who are fans of the sport curling and um, who maybe even are former curlers, I apologize. The rest of us still don't get it, okay? On lots of fronts, like even the rules, we're watching going, why are they doing this? Why does that happen? Why doesn't this count? We were lost, but um, our American representatives won the round we watched, and uh, I guess that was worth it, so... We're really glad to be here with you today. If you take a look inside your Trinity this week, you have a gray document that looks like this. This is our notes with our message today. Also, your home group notes. We have a, a lot of people, by the way, that are new to Trinity in the recent few weeks. And if being involved in a small group or a home group especially, our home groups are what we call sermon-based in that we kind of take the, the message from the weekend and that's what we kind of use as our curriculum when we meet throughout the week. If you're interested in joining a group like that <clears throat> back at the welcome area 
after this service, if you go back there, just ask them a little bit. Hey, I'm interested in getting involved in a home group, a small group. How would I do that? The folks there would love to help you with that. And then you'll be able to have a group of people to answer these questions with rather than by yourself. So that'd be great. We'd love to have you do that. Also, if you have a Bible today, we're continuing in our series almost to the end of a series called Inverted, Living Right Side Up in an Upside Down World. We're in the book of Daniel, and we'll be in Daniel chapter 6 today. Daniel chapter 6. Next week, we'll actually conclude the service or the series. If we concluded the service, you're going to hear be with us all week long. So I hope you're out your sleeping bag. We'll actually conclude the series next Sunday. And we'll do that with a friend of mine named Ray Johnston. Ray Johnston is the founding and senior pastor of a church called Bayside which is up in Granite Bay outside of Sacramento. And um, Ray is just an amazing man. You're going to love him. His uh, zeal and his just sense of zest for life is, is contagious. He's the author of some books. He'll bring some of those with him. And he's just going to do a great job of kind of buttoning up this series. It won't have anything to do specifically with the book of Daniel, but it's going to be a, a, a series, I think, the, or I'm sorry, a, a service, a message um, called Unleashing Hope. And I think that's one of the things that we recognize. Why are we even doing this series is that at times we can move into a place of hopelessness, when we see what's going on around our world, around our country, and just wondering, God, are you, are you still uh, doing redemptive things? God, are you still on the throne? That can even be some of the questions we ask at times in our minds. And what's so great about what Ray's going to bring is that very, very much God is absolutely in charge, even in the midst of us losing certain types of things in our, in our country, God is still very much in control and very much redeeming and saving people one person at a time. So we're excited. Be here with us, and you'll enjoy getting to meet Ray if you've never heard him before. Well, in this series, what we've been talking about is looking at a post-Christian America. We've defined that term. It doesn't mean there are no more Christians in America. It just means that, by and large, our country is marching to the beat of a drum that does not have its origins where it had before in the Judeo-Christian belief system. Things are changing. I don't need to tell you that. You already knew it. The question is, though, how are we to live in this culture? How are we to live right side up in an upside down world? And that's what we've been looking at through the narratives and through the principles laid out for us in the book of Daniel. It's been incredibly encouraging. We found that watching people who have had situations much more challenging than ours, as tough as some things might be today in America, they're nothing like living in Babylon. And so by watching Daniel and his three friends be so, I love that phrase, considerate yet determined. We'll look at that again today. As they've walked that way, these are great principles for us to say, God, things are not at that same level, but the principles remain. This is how I'm supposed to be a person who can honor you at the same time of living in a culture of people who may not be. What we've been doing is every week we've been talking about four axioms to be able to keep us centered, to be able to help us in this tension, because what we don't want to do on the one hand is just blend into our culture as it turns its back on God, but on the other hand, we don't want to come here every weekend and just bash our culture. There's no value to that. So how do we walk in this place in the middle of those tensions? Well, these four axioms, I believe, have helped us. They're in your notes and on the screen. 
The first is that Christians have always lived in oppositional cultures. This is not a a thing that is new to the body of Christ, to those who follow Jesus. Our country was very unique in that for the first 200 plus years of its existence, really had at least an ethic that looked a lot like what the Bible had laid down. But as that is changing, we are actually living in a time that is just very, very characteristic of what most every believer has lived in, in whatever culture or country that he or she is walked. So this is the truth through the book of Acts, through church history. It's what we're walking in today. Number two, our enemy is Satan, not people. We never want to confuse that. Even those who would be so against what we believe God's design in a situation would be, we never want to look at that person as though they are the enemy in the situation. They're simply a pawn in his hand. And why do we believe this? Because people can be redeemed. People can be changed and transformed because if you're not sure that still happens, look in the mirror. Be reminded of your own situation. Be reminded of your own walk before you knew Jesus and the things that you purported. Those things have changed and that can happen in other people's lives as well. That goes with our next point. God calls us to rescue people, not the culture. We're not saying that there's not a place for being influential in public policy, but what we are saying is we ought not jump to how do we get a law to fix this problem. Instead, God, help us to be people of influence. Help us to be influential relationally in our world because that's where true transformation happens is through people's lives being transformed rather than government policies being transformed. Number four, disagree with opinions, not people. Be very careful to not lump someone's opinion into the totality of who they are, but instead say, yes, I believe God's word disagrees with that view, but they are much more than their view on this issue. And I want to keep that mindset because what I don't want to do is write people off. And then when God is at work bringing change into their lives, if I haven't done that, I'll have an opportunity to be a voice rather than someone that they know is opposed to not just their opinion, but to all of them and won't have anything to do with me. That's our attitude. That's our posture we've been taking. We'll catch you up if you haven't been with us. Daniel chapter 6, a brand new regime is in power. We finished last week in Daniel 5 with that, that the Babylonian empire is literally overthrown in a night, and a new king, Darius, is placed on the throne. But Babylon is just as problematic as it was when Babylon was in charge. Now as the Medes and the Persians are going to rule this empire, that the problems still remain. Who remains unmoved, however, is Daniel. He continues, we'll see today, to pray to his God, looking towards Jerusalem three times a day. And even when a law is made prohibiting that kind of prayer, Daniel says, God, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to stand when others around me fall. And in light of that, we're going to see the consequences that come and how God redeems We've said during um, this series, when we look at narratives like today, today is going to um, embody one of the most known stories in the Bible related to Daniel and the lion's den. That's what we pick up in Daniel chapter 6. And and I think one of two tensions or one of two problems are going to arise in your spirit. Number one, on the one hand, for many of us in the room, you've heard this story literally since you were a child. And so it's almost like, and I'm going to tell you in advance, I'm not going to try to spin this story in a new way to make it interesting to you. There's no need to. It's an amazing, supernatural, miraculous miracle. So instead of already jumping to the end, instead of already saying, I've seen this on a flannel graph board, I know how it goes. Instead today, get into the sandals of Daniel. 
Get into his experience in real time when he's experiencing, if you pray to anyone but King Darius, you're going to be thrown in the lion's den for lunch. Get into the real reality of what it was to make that decision, to choose not to honor the king in order to honor his king. That's what I want you to sense today as we walk through this. For others of you, as you hear this today already, you're like, I don't know even what the stories you're talking about, Todd. These are new to me. That's great. What you're going to have the challenge is, is to think that this is nothing but a tall tale. Supernatural miracles are very hard for you to digest, hard for you to accept. And when you hear them in scripture, you just kind of go that again, it sounds like the guy with the big blue ox, you know, all over again, that this is just some tall tale that got exaggerated about some guy who was being persecuted for the way he loved, you know, followed his God. I'm going to encourage you as well that the same God who made these lions also is powerful to close their mouths. And he truly rules over a created order that he put into motion. And so keep that uh, fresh in your mind as well as we look into this narrative today. Here's our now what idea. What is going to allow this elderly Daniel to respond with God-honoring obedience? Look to Jesus for your rescue when you suffer for being obedient to him. Look to Jesus for your rescue when you suffer for being obedient to him. Let's dial in. Number one in your notes today. When you live a right-side-up life, it gets noticed. When you live a right-side-up life, it gets noticed. People pay attention. Here we pick it up today. Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. 120 people ruling over the kingdom. There's a group of three that would, you might even say had 40, 40, 40, let's say, under their leadership. Daniel is one of the three. The satraps were made accountable to them, to people like Daniel, so that the king might not suffer loss. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So now it was 120 Where there's three, now there's even going to be one, one directly responsible to the king, and that guy is Daniel. Talk about job, um, just growth, right, and promotion. He is working his way up, not because he is attempting to, he's in his 80s, okay? It's not like he's a young man trying to get on the growth track on his business. He is in a kingdom of a king who's completely averse to God. We're going to find this out today, but in that, he's just simply honoring God. He's being diligent, capable, he's valued. Now he's going to be made number one, literally in the nation. Uh, Where do we pick it up? Uh, Verse four, at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. In and of itself, you should be moved just by that line. We can't find anything corrupt. We can't find anything self-serving. We can't find anything negligent in his track record. The only way to trip him up is that there would be something that would be adverse to the way he follows Yahweh. What a great reputation. 
And that's what we want to talk about as we dial in today. First off, let's talk about this guy, Darius the Mede. He he shows up at the end of chapter 5 and now here at the beginning of chapter 6. Historians have a hard time finding Darius. It was one of these things where a lot of times throughout biblical history, as textual criticism came and people were wondering, I don't know about these biblical characters. They don't show up anywhere in archaeology and in, in antiquity. Well, then all of a sudden, as, can, as people continue to unearth one kingdom after another, these people keep popping up. Darius is interesting in that the name Darius, you could um, ascribe it to a name like Caesar. Darius is a title. It means Lord, small l Lord, like someone who gives leadership to, uh, like a king. So Darius is a title, and so that was the challenge to figure out which, which Lord, which, which governing official is this person really. And of all the commentaries I was reading on and grabbing hold of, they continue to mention a guy, interestingly enough, named Gubaru, G-U-B-A-R-U, who was actually the general who, remember we read in chapter 5, overtook Babylon in a night. That was the guy who led those forces. And then calling him, rather than calling him Gubaru, which is a good reason not to keep calling him that <laughs> in and of itself, when you get named that, it ain't going to show up in the Bible. Um, But they actually, I think that's really probably who this was, the guy who overtook Babylon. Cyrus is king of Persia. And Cyrus would have placed an envoy, would have placed some sort of governing official on his behalf over the city of Babylon. Makes very much sense it would have been this general and his title. And he would have been a Mede. And it would have been that his, his title is Darius, Lord of Babylon, as it were. Daniel has impeccable character. He's elevated by this pagan king to literally number one in the land, or I guess number two, right underneath him. And he is going to make literally every single government official subservient to him. By the way, we said this last week, Daniel at the end of chapter five is made number three in the land, right? We, we have this guy, Belshazzar, who's under his dad, Nabonidus, and now here's Daniel. So we said Daniel had more, like anything, a target on his back when there's a new kingdom coming in. They save Daniel's life and keep moving him up the system. So you keep seeing this way. And remember, we saw this combination back in chapters one and in chapters two, where, and even in chapters three with Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that not only are these young men, now old men, uh, Daniel's in his 80s, not only are these men committed to honoring God and living with integrity, but God is the one also who continues to raise them up. There's this great blending of the two that's happening, and I believe happening in this text as well, that God is honoring Daniel in front of these um, other world leaders. Now, these people are in- have incredible envy when this announcement is made that Daniel's going to be made not just their peer, but their boss. They can't find anything wrong with him. He's done nothing to deserve something they could find dirt and trip him up. So now what they do is they reason the only way to get Daniel into trouble is to have him have to choose between his king and his God. That's going to be the way they're going to have to get him in this tension. We talk about the power of this reputation. What would that be like for you? What would that be if people were envious of your role and position and the only way that they could find a way to trip you up was nothing in your dealings, nothing in your character, nothing in your integrity. There was no hold there. Instead, all they could do is look at the way that you follow your God. And that would be the way that they would bring a problem. That's powerful for us to stop and process. Powerful to us to process as well that envy's one thing, but related to the way he was honored with this king, that all came because of not only God's favor, but Daniel's obedience and Daniel's walk. Many of you here today 
in a work environment have some really challenging circumstances. Some really challenging things, whether it may be the boss that you work for or the company in general or whatever it may be, there's challenges um, all over the place. And within that, trying to understand, God, is there a way that I can honor you, that I can work hard and be diligent, and at the same time, really be able to say, God, I, I live according to your way, and God's ways, obviously, are that we would be hardworking, that we would have a great work ethic, that we would have great integrity, that people, even though they're opposed to our God, they would see the way we live and they would take notice. These jealous political schemers go to great steps Even beyond those who were jealous, remember back in chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it wasn't as though the people who got them out of power were trying to set up rules against them. They just tattled. When the king said, when the music comes on and everyone bows to the image, these guys stayed standing. All they went and did is told on what these guys did. Now in chapter 6, it's even worse than that. They can't find anything to get a hold of Daniel, so they're going to go and create a law to trip him up. They're going to go outside of their way. With, with co-workers like these, you don't need enemies, okay? This is how bad this is. And they're going to um, get him not only to the point of wanting to take his job, they want to take his life. This is a very, very t- challenging situation. Very, very, um, when you look at it, what we might approach with a lot of fear for a lot of reasons. But Daniel, we're going to watch him do an amazing thing of just being consistent. And that's what I want to draw your attention to today. Here's a great question. Three questions I want to rise as we look at this narrative. Here's the first. If people are looking to find dirt on you related to corruption or conduct, what would they find? Simple question. If people were envious, jealous for you and your role, if they were looking to find dirt on you related to your conduct or your corruption, what would they find? It's not a guilt question. It's just a simple look in the mirror kind of question because that's exactly what was happening in Daniel's scenario. What is the stuff of your life? What is the substance of your decisions? Number two, let's move forward. Determine that it's worth living right side up even before consequences occur. Determine in advance that it's worth living right side up even before consequences occur. This is a powerful thing. And as you talk to people who have been in situations that face degrees of persecution for their faith... They would say the same common denominator. They'd already made the choice to obey before anything ever happened. Let's see what happens with Daniel. Chapter 6, verse 6. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, uh, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed. By the way, that's interesting language. They've all agreed except for the guy Daniel who's over them all. He's not even in the conversation. But they've all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce a decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree into writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, this is is such a great part of the story. When Daniel heard this news, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. There's no change in behavior. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. 
So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? By the way, pretty hefty punishment for prayer, right? If you stop and think about this, we're not talking about anyone who does this is going to be thrown in jail for 24 hours. Anyone who does this is going to get a fine. Anyone who does this is going to be lunch, Okay, that's exactly what he put into motion. The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, who King Darius knows very well, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree that you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace, watch this part, and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. These men are truly diabolical as they trick the king. Remember, all of them come as a group. They've gotten everybody whipped up into a frenzy. They come as one man to the king to say, you need to put this law into motion. By the way, when they say all of the king's advisors agree, they're forgetting the guy who's in charge of all the king's advisors. So obviously full of lies, full of deceit, full of treachery. Because here's the point you need to understand. They're not just out to supplant 83-year-old Daniel. They're out to take his life. This is that charge. This is the, the idea that they're after. This isn't a case of leadership jealousy, but of hate and murder. I was thinking when I wrote these notes, you've seen a, deadline, a Dateline TV show that's somewhere like this. This has happened somewhere in your world. These men are banking on the fact that Daniel would choose to honor his God over his king. Daniel knowing full well that the decree has been made, so there's no sense of him being caught. There's no sense of him being unaware. Once he knew the decree had been signed into law, he goes back, and I love this, just as he always did, facing Jerusalem and began to pray to Yahweh for help. I love that phrase, just as he had done before. It talks about the consistency of dependence that Daniel had upon Yahweh, a a dependence that was necessary in order to thrive in Babylon. And it continued to demonstrate the fact that he firmly believed, and this is that quote we've used all throughout this series from Larry Osborne, God is in control of who is in control. God is in control of who is in control. Process that just for a moment, because here's the implications of that, not just for a guy who lived 2,600 years ago in Babylon, but for you and me today. No matter who's in the White House, God is in control of who is in control. No matter who is in the California legislative system in Sacramento, God is in control of who is in control. No matter who you work for, God is in control of who is in control. And I just want that to sink down into your mind and into your heart a little bit today because it is so easy to forget that. 
It is so easy to lose perspective. It is so easy, the phrase I use about my life is to throw your hands in it. Now, it's hard to make a lot of influence towards Washington. It's even hard to make a lot of influence towards Sacramento. But even in your own world, even in the people you work for, how many times have you been, if you've been in a bad work environment, have you wanted to supplant the person who's over you? God is in control of who is in control. And to live, and we'll see this even in our text in another passage we'll look at today, to see the way that God is the God who always places authority over our lives. And when we trust him, we'll get under that leadership. That's, that's the equation that we're doing. Here's the second great question that arises from this passage. <coughs> Excuse me. Are you living in an overt manner in your obedience to God that could even be noticed in order to make a law against it? Are you living in such a way that there could actually be a law made against the way you follow and worship God? Simple question. These aren't meant to be guilt questions. They're meant to be look in the mirror questions. Is there anything punishable that, uh, that you do consistently as you're following Jesus? Maybe it's the way that you do engage in times of prayer. Maybe it's the way that you do consistently get into the word of God on your own. Maybe it's the way that you show compassion towards those in need. Maybe it's the way you're a person of intentional influence. Is there anything about the way that you normally live that would be something someone could make a law against? Demonstrable. If you were on trial for being a follower of Jesus, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And that's a good question. Even as I wrote it this week in my notes, I had to sit there and process and go, Todd, this is a great one for you to stop and process. The stuff of your life, how it looks day in, day out, not just when you're sitting in an office at a church, does that reality resonate? And here's what I want you to see today. We've talked a lot in our recent mission laying out this last fall of being a people rooted in Jesus and reaching our worlds. The power of influence, the power of reputation. We talked about earlier today, Daniel's reputation with his king was one of amazing sense of competency and and value. What kind of reputation do we have with the people in our world? Here's the thing in your notes. If you were on trial for being a follower of Jesus, there would be at least 8 to 15 people in your relational world who would know for certain if the charges against you were true or not. We talk about the value of relationship. We talk about the value of our oikos, of our relational world, and the people that we do life with. The reason why people would know if you really are a follower of Jesus, why this group would know is because they do life with you. They see you in the everyday things. They see you on the mountaintops. They see you in the valleys. And they recognize, is there something about his or her life that looks like Jesus to me? They would be the ones who know. And it's out of that relational equity that we say it's so important to be a person of Jesus' influence in that world. Those people are aware. Though the context was different when Paul wrote to the Galatians, he was talking about um, battling legalism in that group, and now Daniel about standing for an honoring way, a way to please God in the midst of a challenging situation. Either way, even though the contexts are very different, what they have is, is truly the same. You often have to make a conscious choice to whom you will seek to please, people or God. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, it's on the screens. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. 
We have to make that distinction. And I think you've heard all throughout this series the value of people, the value of being a person of influence in their lives. So we're not saying people don't matter and they're, what they, how they view you doesn't matter. It absolutely does. But what matters more is that we would be able to live for an audience of one. What matters more is that we would say, God, above all else, I want to hear you say, well done. And we'll let the cards fall where they may as we make those kinds of choices. Notice, by the way, even as we talk about influence, that Daniel had incredibly won the favor of the king he served. He did everything he could, the narrative said, to save him from this type of consequence, this foolish law he'd put into motion. He was emotionally vexed at the judgment, and he couldn't sleep in this peril that Daniel was in, knowing that he had sealed his fate. In the midst of his determined decisions, Daniel was courteous and competent and valued by his king. And that's why I love that phrase we've seen in the back half of the series, that we're called to be a people who are courteous but determined. We know that there's a time to stand. But even in doing so, we're a people who will continue to want to honor and and keep intact the relationships around us. We've had a real disconnect with the idea of suffering for being a Christian here in America for a long time. We've talked about it, and I've even been very slow. You've never once heard me even say during this series about the idea of how often we might be persecuted for our faith, because the reason it's hard to even use that kind of language is when we look around the world. Today, in so many countries, there's no such thing as this gathering There's no way that a group of people who want to follow Jesus can gather together in public. And if they are, if they dare to do so, they'll be persecuted. And not just, oh, you know, you're this or you're that. We're talking in prison, taken away from families, losing jobs, even to the point of being martyred for their faith. So it's hard to use words like persecution when we think about what's going on on a global basis. But I did want to throw something at you today. You see... The the tide you know has turned. People on the street that you would ask today, even here in our own Inland Empire, if you were to say, what comes to mind when you think of the word Christian? If someone were a Christian, you'll often hear things like judgmental, right-wing, anti-gay, hater. Those are the types of terms that are used. And sadly enough, for some, this is really true. But for us, as we process that, even some of you were here when Rick was here a couple weeks ago and did uh, his seminar in the afternoon. He showed a very powerful video of a man named Russell Vaught, who was a nominee for a specific office. He was being grilled by congressmen like Bernie Sanders, and what came up was the candidate's theology of humanity's sinful condition. Bernie couldn't get over the idea that there would be people who could be condemned. And, and Russell, just trying to be consistent with an orthodox faith, Never really made it to the point of saying, Bernie, we're all in this same boat, but really just simply try to represent a, a basic reality. I'm a follower of Jesus. I have a theology. I received an email from Bill Bourne Sr., our Bill's uh, dad this week, and it was powerful and profound. I wanted to read a section of it to you today. I got his permission to do so. And, and hear his take on the idea of what it means to live in an oppositional culture. This is how he said it. He says, I quote, I've been uh, in over 60 countries during my work with MAF, Missionary Aviation Fellowship. I've seen some persecution and often thought about the subtlety of it here in America. I've asked my adult children if they are ready for persecution. 
We do have it here, but it does not fit the normal pattern of what is often viewed as persecution. Read this interesting quote from Christianity Today, and here's an article he's quoting. Still given the terrible persecution of Christians overseas, I wonder whether it's accurate to say American Christians are, quote, under persecution. When I discuss the rise in anti-Christian hostility in the States, I avoid the P word, the word persecution, and I don't make comparisons to other parts of the world. Watch this. But listen to a Middle Eastern underground house church leader. This is what that individual says. So I'm quoting three people now after Bill Bourne. It says this, persecution is easier to understand when it's physical. Torture, death, imprisonment. American persecution is like an advanced stage of cancer. It eats away at you and yet you cannot feel it. This is the worst kind of persecution. I thought that was very powerful, very well said, that it's a different kind. It's hard sometimes to even put your finger on it. But when you recognize that there is a tide that's turning, a popular opinion turning against people who would say, I want to follow Jesus with my life, and there being a stereotype that is very, very hard to break. I had a great conversation with someone this last week, and he said, you know, that's how I begin most conversations with people he's in in his line of work, is I want to say I'm sorry for the way you've been treated by some Christians. But I want to show you a real Jesus. I want to show you his love for you. I want to show you the way he's changed my life. This is how the apostle Peter put it to those who cared deeply about who were those he cared deeply about who were struggling with being persecuted for following Jesus from 1 Peter chapter 4. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter, in a very overt form of persecution is saying, this is not something that should catch you off guard as though where did this come from? But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you were insulted because of the name of Christ, you were blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. I love this, but praise God that you bear that name. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. See that last phrase? So those who suffer according to God's will. There is no type of persecution or suffering that we will endure related to following Jesus that doesn't first go through God's grid. And God uses so many things in our lives, so many challenging and difficult things to continue to help us live lives of faith, live lives that are grounded, rooted fully in him. This all comes from his hand. It's something he's doing around our lives. So let it be for us, whether the the subtle advanced stage cancer type of persecution that we might receive or what may come in the future as an overt hostility that we might face for loving Jesus, let us Praise God that we bear the name. Number three in our notes today, entrust yourself to God and watch him show himself strong. Entrust yourself to God and watch him show himself strong. Daniel 6 verse 19, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? It's amazing that Darius actually thinks this could have worked. 
He actually has some degree of faith that Daniel could even be alive rather than coming out and seeing a mauled individual on the bottom of this cave. But Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. And then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. As we go to unpack that, it was fascinating to me as I read that. You felt it just like I did. Even some of you kind of let out a little bit of a groan that these treacherous men, not only were they thrown into the den, but so were their families. And I want you to hear something really clearly today. King Darius was a harsh man. You have to remember from the very beginning, he said, when people pray to anybody but me, they're going to be lunch. Who does that? That's an egomaniac. That is a crazy person with power who decides to kill people because they're praying to anybody but him. Why would we think that a harsh king wouldn't also levy a harsh sentence? I don't want you to overread that, that somehow God was honored in the murder of multiple people, because he sure isn't. It's historically stating what happened and how a harsh king deals harshly. Don't mistake that, that that somehow was pleasing to God and that this guy is his act together. Have we not seen numerous kings throughout this series who have said God is amazing and still do crazy things? They don't bow the knee. They don't become followers of Yahweh. They just take into account that he's strong. And so is the case here. Well, the king is the first up at light to see what's going on and knowing and wondering if Daniel would be alive. He knew it would only be because of his God. Even the people in your world who are watching you go through challenging times, looking to see if God will save you from what you're facing. And the great news is that sometimes he does, and sometimes he doesn't. And when he doesn't, it's still our ability to say, just like Daniel said, just like his friends said, my God is able to deliver me from this, but if he chooses not to, I'm still following him. This is our favorite part of the story, your favorite part, my favorite part, when Daniel affirms that he's alive and well because his God, Yahweh, delivered him from the lions. Here's a third question maybe for you to consider today. When you are saved from unfounded accusations, who do you credit for your rescue? When you are saved from unfounded accusations, who do you credit for your rescue? What a great way that Daniel says that it was my God. He sent his angel among these lions to keep their mouths closed. 
Here's, uh, I was wondering if you were wondering like I was, what were maybe some ideas of what it was like, maybe even a visual picture of Daniel being in the lion's den? I found some, some artists from uh, classical art that gave their best shot at So take a look. I want to show you a few pictures. This one is quite humorous to me because Daniel was about 83 when he was thrown in the lion's den. <clears throat> and that guy looks like he might be 23. So he got a few of the decades off. But uh, you'll see, and I kind of think his woe-begone look is uh, interesting as well, because I kind of don't sense that Daniel had that anxiety and anguish. Um, I don't know, just my thoughts. Look at the next one. I thought this one was good as well, um, as far as just kind of an interesting thing. I think it's interesting, in most of these pictures, you're going to see Daniel with his hand on a lion like they're pets. Not totally sure that's how it went down, but you definitely see this sense of, you know, he's definitely portrayed uh, older, which is more accurate, and he's looking to God. Might that be maybe interesting? Look at the next one. This one um, is kind of hard to see, very dark and very cave-like, like you'd expect. And a little bit, you see Darius at the top looking in, are you alive? And there he is still petting the lion, you know, he's doing okay. Uh, but it's the fourth one that I wanted to show you that I thought was really powerful, and, and I loved it because as I saw it, I was reading through, looking online for different images. The reason I liked it so much and, and felt like it really represented the text was that you see Daniel in a place of utter dependence. He's just looking up. But what I really want you to see today is I want you to see the power of God. Because here's the thing. You've heard the story, many of you, like I have since I was a child, and I've always been so impressed that the, Dan, that the lions didn't eat Daniel for lunch. But what I've not been very impressed by, but should have been the whole time, is the presence of God. It's amazing to consider what Daniel was saved from, but I want to be more drawn to who saved Daniel. And that's what I thought this picture represents so well. If you thought the lions were scary, spend an hour with that guy. Right? I mean, he is a, an impressive, powerful figure. And that's what I want us to see. The, as ferocious and terrifying as the lions may have been, what would it have been like to be in this cave, in this den, and have an angel of God show up powerful enough to close the mouths? That's what I want you to see in this narrative. In your notes, the kinds of things that God rescues us from are amazing and what's more amazing is the presence and the power of God that does the saving in the first place. I want you and I to be drawn to the fact of not just what God would save us from, as amazing as our stories may be, I want us to be drawn to the fact of an amazing, powerful, redeeming, delivering God. He is what we're drawn to, not just what we're saved from, but the one who saves us. It's interesting in the text, it talks about an angel of the Lord came and did this. Very similar writing. By the way, this whole narrative is so similar to chapter three with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're thrown in a fiery furnace and what? There was one like the son of the gods who was there among them. In this case, an angel comes and keeps Daniel protected during this time. And what I want you to see is the Bible often refers to the angel of the Lord being a pre-incarnate version of Jesus. So maybe more powerful than even a messenger from God is very God himself with Daniel through the stages of the night. What would that have been like? Not just the fact that he's not being eaten, but he's there with God himself, 12 hours entombed, and yet realizing all along this is incredibly holy ground. That's to me the power of the story. 
If you're here today and you're wondering how to shift your priority away from what you've been rescued from to how amazing your rescuer is, then I want you to recognize the necessity of faith, the necessity of confidence that you gain as you trust God for the things in your life that you're facing right now before the lion's den is even before you. Look at this great passage. I wanted to bring it up a few weeks ago, but waited to today. Hebrews chapter 11. What more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. Watch this. Who shut the mouths of lions and quenched the fury of the flames. I think both references to Daniel 6 and Daniel 3. And escape the edge of the sword. If you read the rest of Darius's words about Daniel, you'll realize they were words of great praise and honor to the one true God, Yahweh. Words that actually look a lot like worship songs. Even the worship songs we're going to close our service with today. We've intentionally left more time at the end of our service so that we could lift our voices in praise and gratitude to a God who redeems and saves. Our now what statement for this week, look to Jesus for your rescue when you suffer for being obedient to him. Let me pray. Father God, we come before you today with a powerful passage, God, of incredible power, incredible strength, God, incredible saving that you bring to Daniel's life. And Daniel, when he was very young, experienced your miraculous power. Now Daniel, when he's very old, experiences it again. And what we want to say today as a group of people is that, God, even if we suffer because of our way of following you and because of the fact that that's even in your will, help us to be a people who would say, I know my God can deliver me from this, but even if he chooses not to, I'm still going to follow him. You might be here today and you would say, you know what, I have never really would be able to say I've followed Jesus I've not really been at that place when I've been willing to do so or ready to do so, but you know from the things that God has been doing in your life, the things that he has been stirring in you, you're actually ready for that step today. I wanna encourage you to take it and you can do it through a response of what we call the ABCs. A is to admit. To admit you're a sinner who needs a savior. To admit you've lived life on your own terms, not according to God's design. And when you admit that, you simply admit that you're a human being like everybody else in the room. B is believe. Believe that Jesus is the only savior available. Believe that he lived a sinless life. Believe that he died a sacrificial death. Believe that he was raised supernaturally on the third day. C is choose. Choose to say, Jesus, you've left a way for me to live an example in the word of God. I want to follow you footstep for footstep with my life. You can make that decision today, and I pray you would, even before you leave this place. Father, we love you. Thank you for your amazing power demonstrated in the life of Daniel. And we pray in your name.